what works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me. Understanding your own business to know what works. What works for you. This is What Works. I didn't even take an economics class in college. I was very focused on literature and history and I loved all those things. And I, the only reason that I got into this job was I really wanted to work in radio. I didn't take any economics classes in college either, or business classes, or even a communications class. And yet, my guest and I find ourselves talking about business and economics for a living. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores how to navigate the 21st century economy without losing your humanity. Now, anytime the economy is in the news, as it is right now, we hear lots of acronyms, percentages, and dollar amounts. The Fed is raising interest rates by 0.75% again. GDP is down 0.9% in Q2. The average cost of a gallon of gas is over $5. Inflation was 9% in June. Unemployment rates are steady at under 4%. Now, whether or not you know what all of that means, those numbers probably seem pretty far removed from your daily choices and behavior. Except, of course, maybe the gas prices. Economic news tends to position the economy as something out there, a monolithic entity that can be reported on objectively. Like a lot of times, these things that we think of as monoliths, right? The stock market or, you know, the unemployment numbers, things like that. You push one layer under the surface and they get very squishy all of a sudden. And the things that go into them, it's just like a bunch of human decisions. That's Stacey Vanek-Smith, the host of NPR's The Indicator and a contributor to Planet Money, as well as the host of Planet Money's Summer School series. Stacey has a unique job. Her goal is to take what's happening in the economic and business worlds and turn them into something both educational and engaging. In other words, Stacy's job is to make the economy feel human because, well, it is. Now, Stacy took an unconventional path to economics reporting. She went to Princeton for comparative literature and creative writing. Then she went to Columbia for journalism school. As a fellow business and economics nerd with a humanities degree, I needed to know how she ended up talking numbers. The only reason that I got into this job was I really wanted to work in radio. And the only, I applied to every, every public radio job there was. This was before podcasts had really taken off. So it was, you know, there was, it was not a huge industry. <laughs> um, and I got a job for at Marketplace, uh, the radio show Marketplace, uh, on the graveyard shift as a production assistant. And um, I... Remember the first night I was there, Kai Rizal was the host of the morning show at that time. So I was his producer and he turned to me and this was, um, this was my first day. It was like 2.30 in the morning or something. And I was supposed to be writing up little bits of newscast for him. So he said, you know, can you write up uh, a, a little piece about the XYZ, the IPO? And I was like, sure. And I was trying to Google 
IPO, but I didn't realize it was IPO. I was trying like E-Y-E-P-O. So, so I was like, I don't. So I finally was just like, listen, uh, what do you mean? What's an IPO? And the look on his face. And he was like, it's an initial public offering. And at that point, I was so tired and so stressed out. I just sat there and he was like, it's when a company goes public. And I kept sitting there and he was like, it's when a company sells stock. And I was like, okay, yes, I know what that means. And this is the look on his face of like, I cannot believe, because I was the only producer on the show. It was me and Kai and the engineer in the middle of the night. So uh, it was an inauspicious. And I remember just thinking I'm, I might get fired. I just remember thinking he's going to fire me. As it turned out, uh, we had a really wonderful working relationship. And I fell in love with business. And I actually think that the reason I fell in love with business was because it wasn't what I thought it was. I feel like so much of what we're exposed mm-hmm. to with business news is like, you know, and no shade to CNBC. They have a they have a great product, but it's like, you know, stocks up, stocks down, Jim Cramer throwing bulls and bears at the camera. You know, it, it feels so technical. And so business and economics is not technical. I mean, there are technical parts to it, but it is it is the stuff. I mean, it's not that different from religion and literature, truly. I mean, it is full of, it's very human. It's very emotional. Um, it's very personal. I mean, a lot of what we're talking about is things that are very abstract, right? Like money is kind of, I mean, cryptocurrency has really been interesting to watch because what even is it? It's just, it's an exercise in emotion and investment. And, you know, obviously a lot of people's most personal decisions are wrapped up in money, buying a house, going to college, debt, all the shame and judgment that gets put on people about how much they earn or don't earn, their place in the economy. You know, I don't think there's anything more personal, actually, than business and economics. I might be an outlier, but that's always the approach that I've taken in covering the topic. In the second episode of this year's Planet Money Summer School, Jacob Goldstein is explaining GDP, that's gross national product, and offers this important caveat. In other words, maybe the most important thing to remember about GDP is it's not a thing. It's an idea, and that idea keeps changing. In the case of GDP, you know, the, the, the gross domestic product line that always gets used is all the goods and services an economy produces. Well, of course... Things get counted. They don't get counted. It was just a series of very human decisions. Um, I mean, as a religion major, right? It's like when they were deciding which books to include in the Bible, right? That was just like a bunch of humans sitting around making decisions. Who even knows what their motivations were? You know, the GDP came about. They started thinking about it in the 30s and 40s. Economy was a really different place back then. So what do you count? What don't you count? Should you subtract pollution? Should you factor in inequality? We don't really do any of that. We all look at GDP as this number and a very definitive number, right? It's probably the most famous economic indicator, maybe other than unemployment. But it's the one. It's like it's like a report card for the country, right? How are we doing? Uh, 2% growth, 3% growth, A, A+. Plus. And in fact, it is as arbitrary in certain ways as anything else. I mean, obviously, measuring a country's whole economy, that's a hard thing to wrap your brain around. But also... 
how do you measure it? Like who decided what the measurement should be? Who decided what should get counted and shouldn't? And should that evolve? And who evolves it? And, you know, our humanity comes with us wherever we go, right? Even, even into the stock market, even into economic indicators. So I think looking at GDP is very similar to looking at a lot of economic indicators. There's a lot of arbitrary things that go into it. And maybe whoever's growing the fastest, just because the number's bigger doesn't mean it's better always. How we choose to construct an idea like GDP reflects our values, human decisions, human values. In this case, the U.S. GDP represents the values of a certain segment of people at a certain time in our economic and political history. The GDP then transfers those values onto U.S. society as a whole and guides the way we manage our economy. For instance, the GDP includes paid caregiving as productive labor, but unpaid caregiving? Not included. So that means that if your kids attend daycare, the value created through the care your kids receive is counted on our national balance sheet. But if you create that same value by caregiving as a parent for no pay, that value isn't counted. In either scenario, value is being created, labor is being done, and a future generation of productive workers is being raised. But one counts more than the other, economically speaking. Now, setting aside the exploitation of paid caregivers and the gender politics of taking reproductive labor for granted, you can see how arbitrary the decision is to include one type of product, but not the other. The only difference is whether money changes hands. The way we calculate GDP means that we value scenarios in which money trades hands more than scenarios in which money isn't exchanged, even if the economic value created is the same. Okay, so human decisions, human values, that's one component of how very human the economy is. But how about human feelings? Can feelings change what happens in the economy? One really interesting example is, so inflation obviously is this huge topic, and the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve, the central bank, it is a very difficult topic to cover because what do they even do, right? Everything about the central bank is hard to report on. It can, it can feel very daunting, but it's also a very crucial role in our economy. Understanding it is important. And it's playing a big role now in prices. But, you know, the Federal Reserve, they set interest rates. Like, what does that even mean? How does setting interest rates affect inflation? So it can be this sort of daunting thing to describe. One of the major issues in there is that Federal Reserve chairs are not dynamic speakers, right? The, the speeches that they deliver are so boring. They're so dry. It's like a robot is giving a speech. And so one of the approaches that I took, and and the story turned out really well, mostly because my source was so hilarious and charming. I was just, I would ask the question, why is the Fed so boring? Why is the Fed so boring? Why are these speeches so deadly? Because I'm interested in this topic. It is my job to cover this topic. And I can't watch these speeches. I mean, I am deeply, deeply interested and invested in this topic. My mind's wandering. I want to die. They're so boring. 
And so I was like, well, why are they so boring? And so I tackled that question. And as it turns out, it's by design because the, the central bank has so much power. It basically controls how much cash is circulating in the U.S. economy. And it controls the interest rates that banks charge for loans. Hugely powerful. Uh, and a bunch of other things, too. But those are kind of two of the main ones. And the whole world is watching the American economy. The bonds that the U.S. government sells considered the safest investment in the world. We as a country, just get an enormous, enormous, enormous amount of money from people buying government bonds from us. Uh, also, US dollar is basically the what they call it the reserve currency of the world. But people use US dollars for a lot of things, including trading oil. Always those deals are always done in dollars. So we just have a global importance beyond even being the largest economy in the world by GDP. <laughs> I guess it's a my matter of opinion. So everyone's watching the central bank, right? So the central banker comes and gives the speech basically about what we're planning to do, the moves we're planning to make. And so as it turns out, by design, they are just like no hint of emotion, no hint of any surprises. They speak robotically. And I called up this really wonderful author, Sebastian Malaby, who'd written a book all about Alan Greenspan. And I was actually very worried to talk to him about the story I was reporting because I was worried he would find it kind of disrespectful or kind of fluffy, you know? It, it's not a jovial topic, right? It's like people very serious. People cover Sped very seriously. So, and he was so funny and started talking about how when Ben Bernanke, who was a Fed chair during the, the housing crash, the Great Recession, gave some talk where he went a little bit out of the box and he basically said, we're going to stop pumping money into the economy at the rate that we were. I mean, when, and this was like very mild if you look at what he said. Case in point. The taper tantrum. That's right. The taper tantrum, it happened in 2013, years after the worst of the housing crisis was over. But then Fed Chair Ben Bernanke, he said something that rocked global markets. Here are the words that roiled the globe. If we see continued improvement and we have confidence that that is um, uh, going to be sustained and we are convinced that that is sustainable, we will respond to that. So translating from Fed speak to English, Bernanke is saying... Yeah, things seem to be going pretty well. If that keeps up, we might slow down the billions of dollars in stimulus we're pumping into the economy every month. Just like tapered off very slowly at some point, maybe. Sebastian says that people heard these words and they lost it. I mean, people just totally freaked out. The stock market went down. The bond market went down. Currencies crashed. And so there was this huge, great global financial panic. Just based on the Fed chairman saying, maybe at some point... Not sure when, <laughs> I might do something. The whole global economy freaked out. The markets dropped off a cliff. They called it the taper tantrum because he said, we're going to taper off, not stop, taper off, you know, the amount of money that the Federal Reserve is pumping into the economy. And everybody lost it. So, you know, Sebastian Malaby was making the point that everybody's so hyper-focused. It's a world full of helicopter parents around the Fed. So the Fed just has to be like, very calm. I mean, so much of what they do is basically managing emotions, managing fear. I mean, what you say is totally true. So much of the economy is feelings. I remember learning this about inflation. You know, they're like an inflationary spiral is the big thing that you want to avoid. When prices are rising, an inflationary spiral is just like when they start rising out of control. If you look at like, okay, well, what 
how do you know if you're going into inflationary spiral? What are the factors? One of the big factors is just that everybody thinks that they're in an inflationary spiral. That is literally, it's like if people think they're in an inflationary spiral, then it like manifests, which is so <laughs> not what I thought. I thought it was going to be a bunch of technical things, right? It's like, oh, well, if X, Y, and Z happens, then you enter an inflationary spiral. No, it's if people decide. It's like, oh, this is bad. Then it's bad. It's so trippy. <laughs> so trippy. Speaking of feelings, how do you feel about inflation right now? My guess is that there's some frustration and maybe some shock. After all, inflation is one of the economic indicators that we actually do notice on a daily basis. From a quintessentially privileged elder millennial perspective, I'm shocked and frustrated that my favorite fancy coffee is just unjustifiably expensive right now. So I've been forced to go back to the moderately fancy coffee that I also enjoy. But along with that frustration and shock, my guess is that there's also a bit of confusion. In fact, when I asked listeners what they were curious about when it came to the economy, lots of people said, inflation? I asked Stacy to give us a Planet Money style explainer. So inflation, it sounds very fancy. It just means prices rising. That is all inflation is. Prices rising. It's a big deal for a lot of reasons. I'll give you some fun words that you can throw out at your next cocktail party. One of the things that happens in inflation that if it gets out of control, it can basically destroy a country's economy. So paying attention to inflation, the fact people are concerned about inflation is right on. They should be. Inflation is a big concern. So one of the things that happens is something called the money illusion. It's like one of my favorite economic terms. So the money illusion is, let's say you go to your boss and say, listen, prices are rising. I want to get a raise. Boss is like, absolutely. You've got it. Here's a raise of, we're giving you a 5% raise. Great. Oh my gosh, this is great. Your paycheck has gotten bigger, but then you notice that your savings is like going down. And the reason is because prices have risen faster than your paycheck. So you have the illusion of having more money, but practically speaking, your buying power, your purchasing power is diminishing. And that is the big problem with inflation. And yes, you can say wages are rising and they are, but they are not rising nearly as fast as inflation. Plus, gas prices are up like 30 something percent. Nobody's wages have gone up 37%. I mean, I think maybe some people's have, but uh, you know, wages have not gone up 37%. So I think wages rose in 2021 like five-ish percent. Prices rose way more than that, like eight-ish percent. So now we're in a situation where prices are rising. They're rising like 9%. And some prices for food and energy, especially for food and gas, especially, are rising way faster than that. And those are the things that you don't really have a choice. It's not like you're like, I'm going to I'm gonna stop purchasing food because I'm trying to budget. Like, no, you can cut out clothes. You can cut out other things. But gas and food, the big ones, you kind of got to buy those things. The real worry is that the value of our currency, the value of the dollar becomes eroded because so much of money, you know, like we're talking about emotions, is how much people think it's worth. And if people around the world and people in this country start to feel like things aren't worth that much, what happens is 
So if you've got, let's say, $1,000 in savings and you just notice prices rising, 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 you're going to feel like you need to buy whatever you need to buy immediately, right? Let's say you need to buy a car. You're like, my car is about to, to break down. I know car prices are going up, but if I don't buy it now, they're just going to keep going up. You're discouraged from saving and you spend, spend, spend. Well, that pushes prices up, right? Because when demand for cars, you know, a bunch of people make this decision, this individual decision gets made all over the country by millions of people. Millions of people go out to try to buy cars before the prices get even more outrageous. That pushes the price up even more because demand is up. The natural market reaction to this is that producers would say, wow, these cars are in such demand, we're going to make more of them. That is something that can get prices lower. But one of the big things that can affect the prices of things is supply. If there's a small supply of things and that supply can't increase, that pushes prices up. Because if there are like a thousand people that want to buy 50 cars and they can't make more cars, the price of those 50 cars is going to go nuts because there are people who are willing to pay more than you probably for this car. I mean, it's a huge concern. And then an inflationary spiral can happen because people aren't saving money, they're spending money. And then what happens is stores, businesses, they start anticipating all their stuff is getting more expensive. So if you're running a restaurant and you have to print menus, and let's say printing menus is kind of expensive. So you do it once every two months, but you've noticed all your ingredients getting more expensive. You're gonna print prices in anticipation You're going to be like, well, normally I charge whatever, $15 for a plate of pasta, but with all these things getting more expensive, we better just bump it up to 20. So this, it becomes this self-perpetuating cycle and no one wants to save money. So when the Federal Reserve raises interest rates, it means interest rates on loans get more expensive. So if you're taking out a loan to buy a car, to buy a house, that gets more expensive And so people take out fewer loans. There's just less money running around the economy, fewer loans. It slows things down. Businesses stop buying as much stuff because they're not taking out loans. People stop buying as much stuff. So it kind of slows things down. But also, if interest rates go up, you get more money when you leave your money in the bank. So your money can accumulate a little bit. So it just people stop spending as much money. Demand goes down for things that gives supply a chance to catch up and it can bring prices back into balance. Now, I think rapid inflation is particularly tricky for business owners and independent workers. We are both consumers and price setters. On one hand, your cost of living and your business expenses are likely going up. And so it makes sense to adjust prices, shift investments, and pay down debt. On the other hand, Human decisions like those can increase inflation. This is the big conundrum, right? And a lot of times, the things that are the best for us as individuals or business owners are not the things that are best for the overall economy. John Maynard Keynes, like the big backer of stimulus, for this reason that money should keep going into the economy because if you're going into an economic downturn, if the economy is going south and we all start spending less... That has a devastating effect on businesses, even if personally it's a good idea. I would just say to watch things uh, would be my best advice to try to not get gripped by fear, which is, of course, easier said than done. There's been so much drama in the economy and my goodness and everything. But 
you know, I think that's the real thing to be aware of, right? It's the, Keynes called them animal spirits. It's our emotions. It's fear. It's panic. And it's hard, right? Your livelihood is wrapped up in this business, or you're just trying to figure out how to, if you're going to be able to pay your bills or send your kids to college. I mean, these are big, there's a reason people are panicking and it's not that they're, you know, unreasonable people. There are real reasons to panic for sure. But I think it can lead to a lot of bad decisions. People panic, they pull all their money out of something, or people are feeling tons of FOMO, like, how did I not get into NFTs? And my neighbor made all this money on crypto, so I have to go into crypto. Just like, maybe don't make any big, wild decisions in an emotional state, which is, of course, easier said than done. We've all been in emotional states and made decisions that we've looked back on, been like, what was that? You know, I think there's a lot of that going around, and maybe even just an awareness of that. Also, I would say that... The central bank is on it, which is good. You could say they acted too slowly, but they are acting now and in pretty big ways. Like all the panic, all the jumping around is not good. So maybe just hold steady as much as possible. That's what I'm trying to do. It's not easy, by the way. (laughs) It's one thing to be like, people are so emotional and they do all this weird emotional stuff. I do understand. It's like one thing to observe it in other people and it's another thing to deal with it yourself. And it's much harder, especially when you've got employees counting on you and everything. But I would just say like, temper your reactions. Things are changing so fast now. Don't panic. Don't react to the news with false urgency. Stay vigilant and adjust as needed, not as feared. You mentioned that people are being hit by so many confusing economic indicators, economic headlines right now. Interest rates are up, but unemployment is down and the stock market is up, even though interest rates are up and like, what is going on? So knowing what you know now, what would you be paying attention to indicator wise or trend wise, even if it wasn't your job? Yes. Okay. I think this is a great question. There are three things. Two of them are obvious. One is less obvious. So I would look at inflation, those numbers. That is a big one. You want to see what's Mm -hmm. happening to prices. And I would look at I think the overall inflation number is the one that they kind of, the big one that gets reported, it's the one to look at. The other one, also quite obvious, but a big one, is the unemployment number. Because the two pillars of our whole economy are really prices, the strength of our currency, and employment. So those are the two real indicators of health. So Unemployment rate's still very good. You know, still unemployment is still very low. All of that looks pretty positive. Like our, our economy is generating a lot of jobs. It's still healthy in that way. Inside of that number, something that's a little more obscure that you can watch for is something that's called the quits rate or jolts. It's has one of the more delightful names. It's the number share of people quitting their jobs. That is a great indicator of the health of the economy because it is If people feel confident in the economy, confident enough to leave a job without having another job lined up necessarily. So it's the rate, you know, it's like, I quit. If a lot of people are doing that, they feel pretty confident about where the economy is. If people, if that number, and it's been at record highs, millions of people quitting their jobs every month. And, you know, it's been in headlines and things like that, but that is such an indicator of confidence in the economy. That is where the rubber hits the road. If you decide to quit your job, chances are you've made that decision because you're pretty darn sure you can get another job. 
And I think a lot of things are happening in the Great Resignation, a lot of emotional things, but there's some practical stuff, right? Like I have to pay my gas bill and, you know, feed my family. So I think the jolts rate, which comes out, is really interesting to watch. And I'm very interested to see if those numbers are affected by kind of the the more mixed news that we've been hearing about the economy, especially like in the tech sector and things that have traditionally just been sort of growing with no limits, you know. There is more than one way to lose yourself in the 21st century economy. I've covered sales, marketing, productivity, labor relations, and self-branding, and how each of those components of our work can lead us to alienate ourselves and others. But even more than any of those individual components, the discourse around business and the economy can make us feel disconnected, even excluded. Business and economic news often makes it seem like there are the people who get it and the people who don't. Either way, our human decisions, mine, Stacy's, Jerome Powell's, and yours, are part of this enormous, complicated ecosystem we call the economy. I think one of the things about the way that business and economics are covered is it can be very alienating. Uh, It can feel very jargony, very technical, very confusing, at the same time, very important. But honestly, nothing in the economy is that complicated. One of my favorite definitions of economics is the study of choices. Or one, one of the more common definitions of economics is the allocation of limited resources. And those limited resources are, you know, as small as like your own time, how you choose to allocate your own time. And as Mm -hmm. large as, you know, giant tankers full of oil going to the US versus going to Europe. So, you know, the economy embraces all of those things. And I think it is unfortunate that it, because it is also a powerful thing. It can be really problematic that a lot of us can feel sort of like the economy isn't for us, like we're not part of it, like economic news isn't talking to us. And like, you know, even the subtitle of your show, like, why do you have to make a point that humanity and economics are not diametrically opposed? Because they're covered in a way that makes it seem like there's no room for humans here. It's like robots buying stocks or making derivatives or whatever it is. But I think it's really crucially important that we can understand the world around us so that we can more effectively function in it and that we can have more power in the economy. I mean, if you look at the people who business news is not directed towards, right, like most coverage of business, most business journalists are, you know, white men. And so if you're outside of Mm -hmm. that group, you can feel like it's not for you. You avoid learning that news. And that has real consequences in our lives, right? I mean, so many people have talked to me about just feeling so overwhelmed about like, what do I invest in? How do I save money? And that's your power to function in the economy. Your ability to function in the economy can be really affected by the news. So that's kind of the philosophy, I guess, behind Planet Money and, and of course, behind your show, too, is how to take this very powerful force and just open it up so that people have access to it mm-hmm. and can harness that power in their own lives. So they have they, a little more agency. So maybe... Talking about the economy is just another way of talking about community, culture, and mutual concern. Or at least, it should be. 
Listen to Stacey Vanek Smith on Planet Money's Summer School series and on The Indicator from Planet Money. I'll be back in September with a series I'm calling Self Help LLC. It's a look at the business and politics of self help, how cultural entrepreneurship is reshaping a significant segment of the labor market, and how financial incentives and economic pressure distort what matters. In the meantime, I would so appreciate it if you pre ordered my new book, What Works A Comprehensive Framework to Change the Way We Approach Goal Setting. It's a radical new approach to understanding our values, vision, and goals that takes culture, systemic oppression, economics, and personal identity into account. Find What Works wherever you buy books or go to explorewhatworks.com slash book. That's explorewhatworks.com slash book. What Works is produced by Yellow House Media. This episode was written and edited by me, Tara McMullen, with help from Marty Seafelt. Lou Blazer is our production coordinator. Emily Kilduff is our production assistant. John McMullen is our executive producer. What Works is recorded on the ancestral homeland of the Susquehannock and Conestoga peoples. The Yellow House is located on the unceded lands of the Kutunaha Nation. 